Rebecca Goldstein, welcome to Fritankepod. Ah, great pleasure to be here. Um, you have published, or you actually published quite a few years ago, but now in Sweden you published a book about Spinoza, the, the great philosopher. Um, first of all, tell us why you wrote a book about Spinoza. Yeah, it was actually not my free will, actually. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> Uh, I was approached by uh, the publisher of a series. It was published in the U.S. originally as part of a series. Mm -hmm. And the series was to ask um, Jewish thinkers to write about previous Jewish thinkers or Jewish subjects. Mm -hmm. And my initial response was, as you could probably guess, knowing me, I'm not a Jewish thinker. I'm a thinker. <laughs> I'm not a woman thinker. I'm a thinker. Yeah, Please yeah, yeah. don't qualify. <laughs> and, um, uh, and 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 that the whole project seemed to me to be too narrow, too sectarian, you mm -hmm. know. And mm, I yeah. and then I uh, he's a friend of mine. This 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 uh, publisher. So he t he had taken me out to lunch, and then he said, "Well, you know, if you were going to write about anybody, who would it be?" And I said, "Well, it would be." Baruch Spinoza, the great 17th century thinker who was excommunicated by mm. his own Jewish mm. uh, community. and But to write about Spinoza from such a point of view in, in a series dedicated to Jewish thinkers um, would be the greatest betrayal of Spinoza because he was the great advocate before his time of universalism and of, mm. you know, of, of cosmopolitanism mm. and all of these things that were, you know, so... Startling, startlingly new for his time, mm. and so this uh, friend of mine, who's the who, uh, the editor of the series, said, "You have got to write this book. I will give you complete freedom to to write whatever you want, but you have so much passion about why." He shouldn't appear in the series. That <laughs> he has to appear in the series. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So, mm -hmm. which is which was slightly paradoxical, yeah, but that's yeah. how that's how I came to that's write the book. You... Yeah. But 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 I mean, I must ask you if you speculate on Spinoza's thinking. I mean, if you try to go into his brain and try to explain to me how come yeah. that he was a cosmopolitanist and, and universalist and all these things at that time. So that's very interesting because I sort I've changed I changed my views mm -hmm. um writing this book because I, I, I wanted to understand precisely this yeah. question. And you know, when I teach him as a philosopher I would never think about that. I wouldn't think about the person. Mm. You know, I would think mm. about just the ideas, the ideas right? Yeah. Not, not how did it come forth from this person? But as I was writing the book I saw that actually he did belong in this series because I came to the con conclusion it was the fact that he was Jewish that allowed him to see uh, the, uh, you know, the danger of mm -hmm. thinking that the group that you're born into, that this identifies you, that this defines you. Mm. Um, and he, he took, you know, so, so he was a slightly older contemporary of Descartes, mm -hmm. and he takes Descartes' rationalist thinking, and he applies it to the problem of the Jews, right? Mm -hmm. um, and his, and his time, um, he came from um, a family and a community, the community that eventually disowned him, mm -hmm. but he came from a community 
that had been subjected to the greatest Jewish tragedy of its day until the 20th century, mm. um, and that was the Inquisition, yeah. the, the Iberian Inquisition. His people were from Portugal, and were, the Inquisition was still raging at the time of his, of his, of his life, yeah. and uh, people were still living as uh, secret Jews, as mm. Moranos, and his community in Amsterdam, there was the first community, they were allowed to really practice openly, mm. um, uh, build a synagogue and build a community. Um, but they had to be kept, they promised the city fathers they would keep their community in control and, um, you know, that they would not create any civic disturbances. And so, you know, that had something to do with his being um, to, excommunicated, you know, this heretic, you know, they wanted to just distance themselves from them. They were a very traumatized community, and they spoke a great deal about what it means to be Jewish, um, because back in Iberia, in, in Portugal, here were these Jews who had converted to Catholicism, who were living a Catholic life, but inside, they still considered themselves Jewish. Well, were they Jewish or weren't they Jewish? You know, if you are not keeping the commandments, which they were not allowed to do, on pain of excruciating death, mm. um, are you still Jewish? And this was a this was a question that just tore his community apart. Um, there were all sorts of controversies. He grew up surrounded by this, and I think he took. Cartesian rationalism, he applied it to the problem of Jews. What does it do? And decided, oh, it doesn't matter who's Jewish, who is it? Mm. it? That's not what matters. What matters is the rationality of your thinking. And to the extent that we're rational, we all, we all have exactly the same identity, and that's what we ought to strive for. Mm. And this is the seeds, the beginning of the Enlightenment. This mm. is a, an, an amazing... So I actually came round, I you know, every every time you write a book, you discover things, or the book that is not worth writing. Mm. You know, and I actually came around to to being grateful that my uh, friend uh, forced me to think about Spinoza as mm. a as a Jew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see. And he also played a role in your personal life. Uh, tell us about that a little. Yeah, bit. so you I yeah, I grew up in a, a, a very religious household. Orthodox mm. Jewish household. I was sent to a high school partly because of my intellectual independence. My parents were uh, worried about me. Nobody would want to marry me. They were mm -hmm. afraid because all these books I was reading. And so I, they sent me to a really strict all-girls school, uh -huh. stricter than my family was even, mm. and so that we were being trained in this school, not even not to think at all, and to just become housewives and mm. bear as many children as possible. And wow. I hated this school. Yeah. How I long did you go there? I went for three years. Oh. Um, three years. But um, how many days I went? I Not so many, because I... <laughs> <laughs> I played hooky all the time. I have so many stories about the trouble I got myself into because I was also a very innocent because I was brought up in such a sheltered religious mm -hmm. community. It was the wild days of the of the late 60s, early 70s, and I'm roaming around New York City 
<laughs> talking to everybody, trying to understand how life really works outside my little wow. bubble. Yeah. Oh my God, it's amazing that I didn't get myself killed. When I think back, you, you were know, a party girl at that time. Oh no, I was a, a, a talky girl. I was yeah. talking, talking. I just uh. wanted to understand. Yeah. Uh, I knew that I was living in a bubble, and I wanted to understand. And because you know, I was a pretty little blonde girl. Everybody, well, well all the men were very willing to talk to me. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So anyway. So, um, yes, I went to this school. But one day, I did go, so every once in a while, I would show up in class. And uh, <laughs> I showed up, and it was a class on Jewish history. And we were studying um, modernity, what they called modernity. And they were 100% against modernity, yeah. you know, everything you know, just wildness and terror, you know, and it, it, as I say, that it was all downhill since Babylonia, according to them. And um, his name was mentioned, Spinoza, mm -hmm. that this was somebody who was brought up, brought up little girls. The rabbis were, sh he was shaking his finger in our faces, brought up little girls like you in good Jewish homes. And, um, and what was also very interesting is that he mentioned that um, the rabbi that uh, his family had come from um, a tortured past. Well, most of the girls in my class, and including me, our family had also come from a tortured past mm -hmm. that it was, we were a generation after the Holocaust. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, so immediately I felt a kind of connection, you know, to this this philosopher. But he was told to us as a cautionary tale that he was a very smart boy. He was the brightest boy in his school, in his yeshiva, the Jewish school. Mm, yeshiva. Mm -hmm. Yeshiva, where you sit and learn. It comes from the word yoshev, Hebrew for sit. That is, the, uh -huh. this is the highest ideal in Judaism. You sit and you learn. Mm. You sit and you study. So that's uh, so why we're all so unfit. We're physically unfit. <laughs> and so, um, uh, and he he was uh, you know he was a disgrace to his community and mm. they had to expel him and um, and then two two of his thoughts were mentioned one was that the Torah the five books of Moses were not written by Moses that they were not that they were man made that they were not you know dictated by God himself. Um, I thought, oh, that's a very interesting idea. Because already, I mean, I knew the Torah very well. I'd been reading it over and over and over in my classes, and it was clear that many things were wrong. Mm -hmm. And um, and the other uh, idea, imagine, little girls, what a stupid idea this was. He thought that nature is God, that there's no God outside of nature. What does that mean? This is incoherent. And it was like the first time I raised my hand to ask a question because I, I just, I'd given up on school. I never asked questions. I knew I was just going to get propaganda. And, um, you know, and I was questioning the teacher, what, what, what could he have meant by that? And, you know, I, I, I didn't get any answer. It was, you know, just uh, why, why is this little girl finally asking a question? Anyway, but I, I was interested. And it started me that often when I was playing hooky from school, I was going to libraries and I was reading philosophy. This was, you know, I was, before I was only reading science books when I was going to libraries. Mm. Um, but now I started to read also Bertrand Russell's A History of Western Philosophy. And, uh, and so, yeah, and then, uh, you know, when I, when I went to college, first I was majoring uh, in math and physics, but then I uh, 
very late in my college career, I switched to philosophy of science, philosophy of physics, philosophy of mathematics, um, and then went to graduate school in philosophy. And there, too, it was very anti-Spinoza because I was doing analytic philosophy. We wanted everything to be very precise and no metaphysics, no attempt to a priori, non-empirically deduce the nature of reality, that this was just a false thing for philosophy to do. And Spinoza tries to do this. Uh, he tries to deduce everything from first principles. Uh, he's a, an extreme rationalist, makes every claim for reason that has ever been made. And um, uh, so also there, too, I had, I was, uh, even though it was no longer Orthodox Judaism, it was the extreme opposite of Orthodox mm. Judaism, analytic philosophy, um, yet I, I had a, I, I, I came to a sort of very dismissive view of philosophers like Spinoza until I started to teach him uh-huh. as, a, as a professor, and, uh, and then uh, slowly on my own, began to make sense of this of this uh, magnificent book the ethics that mm. that he published and but yeah. tell me at this time had you had you left the the orthodox religious beliefs completely completely i had okay. completely left it when However, did you do that oh in high school uh-huh. oh in high school yeah absolutely did you tell your parents no i'm a very private person mm. and it would do no good You know, and as I say, my family, uh, particularly my father's family, my mother's family had been from Hungary, my father's family had been from Poland, um, and, uh, you know, they they had suffered, they had lost family, they mm. had lost, and so, you know, why put them through no, more no. trauma? And um, But they escaped the Holocaust. Yes, obviously. both of them, but, yeah. you How? know, but How? siblings were, um, they got out in time. In the nick uh-huh. of time, my father's family got out in the nick of time, but he had a sister um, who was killed. I had first cousins who were killed. You know, it was all so we're all in my generation. Every single one of us is named after a dead child. Uh-huh. You know, because so many dead children were were mm. killed, and so you know, I grew up with these stories, and so you feel. I I felt at least, um, yeah, I. As long as I can think my thoughts and you won't dictate to me how to think, I'll follow all the practices. I'll keep kosher. I'll keep the Sabbath. I'll keep everything. My first husband is Orthodox. Um, I got married very young at 19 mm-hmm. and um, and stayed married for a very long time. You know, so it was I was outwardly keeping everything and it was okay with me. I didn't care if, <coughs> excuse me, it didn't didn't have to eat the cheeseburger or, or you know, mm. that didn't matter to me as long as I could think. Mm. And my family allowed me that. As mm. long as you obey the laws, the commandments, um, we can't we can't command your private thoughts. They mm. were and that's actually a very Jewish view. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, can, yeah. Yeah. You imagine. know, it's a very performative religion. Yeah. Perform the commandments. The hope is In performing the commandments, the beliefs will come. Yeah, yeah. That's the hope. It wasn't working with me, but my family was very optimistic. Eventually, it's going to work. <laughs> but actually, your your life story reminds me about this novel by Isaac Bashevis Singer called The Yeshiva Boy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is, is actually about a girl. Yes, uh, exactly. Gentle, who, who loves science and philosophy, but she is not allowed to study that. Yeah. Uh, um, because at the, the, this is the early... 
20th century, I yeah, think, yes, in yes. Europe somewhere. And, uh, in, but in her father part, yeah. is a rabbi, and he allows her to study at home that's in secret. Right. But well, then she dresses up like a boy like to a, get into the university. So yes. that's the story. It's, yeah. But, it's, it's, but you know, my father also, so girls are not allowed to study the highest intellectual reaches in mm -hmm. Judaism, which is the Talmud. So we would study, you know, the Torah mm -hmm. and the prophets and the laws. But not this great, and it is very intellectual. I think, mm -hmm. I often think I'm sort of genetically um, cultivated to do analytic philosophy because it's very analytic, splitting hairs, you know, very. And um, uh, this kind of logic is called pilpul. Pilpul. Pilpul, and uh, Talmudic logic, and it's this extreme analysis. Mm -hmm. um, and girls are not allowed to study this, and my father studied with me in secret. Really? In secret, So it's yes. very much the same story. Very much. <laughs> I have an older brother. He's a rabbi. Uh -huh. He did not like to study Talmud. He was not, he's a very smart, but he's not analytically I inclined. Yeah. Yeah. And so my father, he wanted to study with one of his children, and uh -huh. I was the designated <laughs> one, but it was kept quiet. Uh -huh. It was kept quiet. Yeah. There is a scene in, in the movie Gentle based on Bashevis Singer's book, where this little girl says to the rabbi father that, why do I have to keep this secret? Because yeah. God can see everything. He knows everything. Why should I keep it secret? And the rabbi father answers, well, because God would understand, but that wouldn't, your neighbors would not understand. Yeah, yeah. No, which I is quite... <laughs> it's quite simple. I mean, my father he really meant it as a compliment to me. I know. My father was a darling. He was a very dear man. I respect him. Uh, the most of Everybody I've ever mm. met, he was a, a natural saint, I think. Mm. But he was a person of his time yeah. and of, you know, um, but he would say, it's it, it, God made a mistake that he made you a girl and mm -hmm. that you're like an, an ostrich, a bird who, do, who can't fly. Mm. <laughs> you know, that it had, wow. yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. And I know he meant it. He did. He meant it from his heart and he meant it as a compliment. He was telling me I was had a good head on my shoulders. But, you know, he couldn't, somehow to him, mm. there was something askew, <laughs> some sort of mistake. <laughs> is it true that someone told me that there is some kind of mourning prayer for Jewish boys that says, thank God you didn't make me a woman? Oh, yeah, every every. Every day, every it's part of the morning prayers. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> that they say this, you know, and the girls say, and I would say this every day until I stop saying it, <laughs> or yeah. I would just say the words and yeah. think I disagree. Yeah. But it, it's uh, thank you, God, for make for making me according to your will. You yeah. know, so sort of that's what the girl says. The girl saying, and so you're sort of reconciled to your yeah. lesser fate. Your and yeah. the boy says, thanks for not making you, me a woman. Yeah. And so you can imagine what wow. kind of respect for women this yes. encourages yeah, yeah. Yeah. within a Jewish family. But your father was from Hungary, you say? No, he was from Pol He was from well. Now it's Ukraine. Yeah, he yeah. was from Ukraine, a little little village in Ukraine, not far from uh, Lviv. Mm -hmm. And um, and his father was the rabbi, and his father before him. I come from twelve generations of rabbis, ah. and my brother is a rabbi. Wow! But his son is not a rabbi; he's a lawyer. So, uh -huh. <laughs> so your mother was from Hungary. Hungary, okay. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. have a 
close friend to my family, Elizabeth, who is 92 years old now, and she's from Hungary, and she was actually in Auschwitz. She's one of the survivors oh of Auschwitz. Oh, my goodness, yeah. She was there for six months uh, and uh, became free when, when they freed uh, Auschwitz. Wow, so yeah. Yeah, she's she's got a, a life story. She's got a story. Yeah. Yes, she's yes. A, she's a good friend of of my family and um, fantastic woman. You know, so strong and so yeah. clear. Yeah. ninety two years old. Yeah, I she mean, I grew up with these house. people, many who had come from the camps. Yeah, with the numbers stamped yeah. on them. Oh, you know, just amazing. But every single one had a miracle to tell of how they escaped because it took a miracle. It would yeah. take a miracle, mm, mm. you know, to step out of line, you know, and it's often, mm. you know, audacity. <gasps> and that's one of the things that I was brought up on, these stories of audacity, of not always following the rules. Mm. And I took it in a way of, yeah, I'm going to rethink all the rules, mm. including the rules that my family yeah. observes. You know, but I'd would you say that's a part of Jewish culture to be a, a critical thinker? Oh yeah, it, yeah, within limits. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, within limits. So extremely critical, and you know, the Talmudic learning, which is so interesting, is, and I was fortunate to experience it in the real old way, coming from Europe. You know, my father teaching me as it was taught in Europe. First, you take you take one position, and your study partner is called a chavrusa. Uh, comes from the word friend, and it's uh, yeah. a very important. Your study partner, and um, you and your study partner, one takes one position, the other takes the opposite position. In the middle, you switch. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So. This is this is brilliant, and yeah. I use this in my classes yeah, all it's, it's the great. time. Right, yeah. my students will t- one will take one position, one will take the yeah. other. You know, on free will, on yeah. the objectivity of morality, mm. on the source of mathematics. Yeah, in the middle, you switch. It's great. I agree. Yeah. I, I've used it myself when yeah. I'm teaching sometimes. So, so yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a wonderful thing. Yeah, exactly. So to really reject to un- to reject a view. You have to make the very best case for the view. Yeah, yeah, yeah? exactly. Yeah. exactly. Actually, speaking of Jewish culture, I have a close friend in Stockholm, a Jewish man who who is very interested in Einstein and his science. and And he said to me once, which I thought was interesting, he said that you know the Nazis tried to dismiss his his uh, science as Jewish science. Exactly. Uh, but my Jewish friend said, well. In one way, they are right that it was Jewish science because Einstein questioned the whole paradigm, the whole concept, exactly. uh, and which is a part of the Jewish intellectual tradition to do. Exactly. So in that sense, it was influenced it, that's very true. by yeah, Jewish that's, thinking. That's a brilliant point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think, I think yeah. it is, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Which, of course, doesn't make it less right, but that's another thing. <laughs> yeah, and it also m- means <clears throat> that many, many Jews have questioned the whole religious basis, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's it's, true. Yeah, right. And and Judaism at this point makes room for us. They never disown us. No. They never you know, and even you know, they're very proud to own now Spinoza yeah. as as one of their own. Many of yeah. my Jewish friends in Stockholm are secular humanists or yeah, atheists. Absolutely. And there's nothing you know, so many of my students who came from Catholic Backgrounds, they will tell me, I'm ex Catholic, I'm ex, you know, this. Mm. Nobody ever 
Congress is their ex-Jewish. No, you, that's right. You can't get that's out. You, you can't offend them enough. No, no, no. <laughs> really, uh, th- that you're an ex, you're, that no. the community says no, no more. And that yeah. that makes Ju- Judaism separate from all the other world religions. I, I think. I think so. I think there's something to be learned there. Um, mm. It's 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 almost a a, a post theological religion. Yeah, it's Good point. really. A, when I would tell my family, and if you saw my family, you you know, my nephews and mm. my great-nephews in black hats, mm. and, you know, it's the real mm. deal, the real <laughs> you deal, know, yeah. it's heavy-duty Jews. Yeah. Um, you would think you could shock them if uh, saying, uh, I don't believe in God and all this. Well, my I have a nephew. I, he's my go-to guy when I need very technical knowledge about the Talmud. He's mm. a great Talmudic scholar. Mm-hmm. He knows the whole Talmud by heart. I mean, he's a, an amazing brain. Uh, but that's all he knows. <laughs> Didn't go to college, only sits and learns in mm. yeshiva. Um, but I asked him once a question, and then he said, Oh, Aunt Rebecca, why would you need to know something so technical? And then I said, Oh, Ilan, you, you don't want to know what your heretic... Aunt, why she wants to know this, and then he he wrote back to me. This is by email. Um, Aunt Rebecca, I'm really disappointed in you. I thought you knew me better. There's nothing that you think that I don't also think. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was telling me he's an atheist too. Uh-huh. He, that's what he was telling me, wow. and that he, wow. but he observes everything. Yeah. W- would he even say that he, that he's an atheist? He would say it in the way that he said it to me. There's nothing that you think. He knows what I think. It's nothing you think that I don't also think or, you know, I don't know if he said believe, but, you know, Mm. think about something like this, you know, that his mind was open to this. But uh, going back to Spinoza, he said that God is nature. It's normally called pantheism, right? Yeah, yeah, but Uh, that word is often misunderstood. Uh-huh. Uh, pantheism because it's nature understood in a very abstract way in the way that a physicist <laughs> understands nature okay. the ultimate um, the ultimate laws of the final theory that would explain everything uh-huh, okay. mm. everything so it's a it's not a, you know a kind of pantheism of uh, worshiping uh, trees and rocks no, no. and okay. nothing mm. of, of this nature but do you think that Spinoza would have said that he's an atheist if it was allowed. Yeah, I, I think so, you and think so? My, mm. I think so. And uh, yeah. the way, the way that the word is normally used, you know, God, he is clearly misusing. <laughs> I mean, it's just as. Yeah. Uh, but he means that if we were to understand nature in, on the deepest level, and he thinks he has a proof that it must exist at this deep, deep level that would explain everything. Mm. Um, it would be an object of our awe, of our reverence. It would give us perspective, make mm. us feel that we're a part of something grand, um, and that's uh, we partake in this grandeur just just because we're these small little impl- imp- Im- uh, implicit mm. things, you know, that are implied by the whole magnificent scheme of things mm, mm. Um, so it's it's a uh, it's an object of awe it's an object of you know of our of love mm. uh, of admiration of gratitude and so it inspires those kind of transcendent feelings in us yeah. and 
that's an, and, and it's self-explanatory, just as in religion God is supposed to be self-explanatory, mm-hmm. that all the questions of why does it exist end in God, just God explains himself. You can't, you can't go any further. That's what nature does. Yeah. Ultimately, it explains mm. itself. Mm. So in that sense, also, it is the causa sui. It's the cause of itself, ah, the explanation of itself. Sui, yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah. So that there's some justification for using the word God. But as the Abrahamic religions understand the word God, this is a complete misuse. Yeah, and yeah. I think it's the same way, the same view that Einstein had. Completely. Uh, but so many people, I meet it all the time, religious people say that Einstein was religious and he becomes sort of an alibi for for um, for sci- uh, the great scientist who so, is religious, which he was not. <laughs> he certainly was not. And he always, being cagey, <laughs> yeah. you know, when he was ever asked, you know, do you believe in God? He would say, I believe in Spinoza's God. Yeah, yeah. In fact, there was a rabbi who got a little nervous, a rabbi, uh, in, where was he living? I think in Germany. And he was getting a little nervous hearing about Einstein's views. And so he sent him a telegram. Do you believe in God? Um, return telegram paid for. And uh, so he had up to like 100 words, Einstein, and he didn't use the whole 100 words. He just wrote, I believe in Spinoza's God. <laughs> that was the return. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and if you know really what Spinoza's saying, yeah, it's a good yeah. cover, but it sounds... Okay, to the rab- the rabbi was satisfied. But it's sad that so many people need to have a cover and cannot say I uh, Yes. So I, it's something I actually object to very much in physicists. To, to this day, physicists will often talk about God's point of view or yeah. say Stephen Hawking at the end of his book when he says, you know, then we'll know the mind of God. Yeah. This is straight. He's getting what he's saying there. Because he's saying, we will understand why the laws of nature are as they are and why they had to be realized. He is getting this from Einstein, he says earlier in the book, and Einstein is getting it from Spinoza. Mm, So they're using this God language, Mm. which totally misleads people. Mm, mm. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and you know, even in math... Sometimes there was this great mathematician, Paul Erdos, actually a Hungarian-Jewish mathematician, and he was an atheist, clearly, but he would say, oh, this comes straight from God's book, when a proof was mm. perfect and beautiful. Yeah. Oh, it's straight from God's, yeah. God's book. And, and so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a playful metaphor yeah. for the ideal theory or the ideal proof mm. But it's so misleading to people. I agree. I agree. And I think the the great negative side of that is that it sort of legitimizes other uses of God, which is much more destructive in the world today. Exactly. Uh, so even if this is sort of not dangerous in itself, you, we should leave that metaphors completely. I really think That's so. What I, think. I, I think it is. It's, it's it is it is pernicious because, as you say, you know the the, the great reasons like God is 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 claimed must be is one to explain the physical universe. You know, space the spatiotemporal mm. order, mm. this beautiful order. It's one, and then the other is the moral order, mm. and so. If these physicists are playfully using the word God to say, yes, we need God to explain the physical universe, ultimately, then, well, God's other order of business, mm. you know, is to explain the moral order, the moral uh, morality itself. 
And there, I think it's much more dangerous because mm. then you start getting people saying that without God, you know, there can be no no morality. Yeah, yeah. And so, what about you, unbelievers? You must all be. Mm. Yeah, it's a very common point they have. Yeah, we did. I think you debated William Lane Craig on oh, this. Oh, that was a joy. <laughs> <laughs> it's on yeah. YouTube. <laughs> So I was invited, and uh, my I have a speaker's agent, and I'm against. I don't like debates. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm again doing one at the European Union in a few weeks, and that I, 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 uh, I, I I'm submitting to. But um, <coughs> excuse me. I don't like debates mm-hmm. um, because you know you know people are not. They're trying to win. They're not really. It's not. Nobody's there to have their mind change. I mean, no. up on stage, maybe in the audience, yes, mm. but but not on stage. I just don't like this. It's and I, I like to talk to people and find some sort of commonality. Well, anyway, I was invited, and it was by the my speaker's agent said it was the University of Toronto, and I didn't look too closely. I didn't notice. It was one of the colleges of the University of Toronto. Mm. It was Wycliffe College. Wycliffe. He was a, 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 a I think, the founder of Meth, uh, the Methodist movement. So it was a theological. It was a theological college. I didn't realize. So mm. it was like stat- I would never have gone <laughs> otherwise. Mm. And it was um, this guy, yeah, William Craig. What William, William Lane, Lane Craig? Craig mm. Yeah, who's a, 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 a theologian. A, a, yeah, he calls himself a philosopher, but I mean, he's a theologian. He's mm. a Christian apologist, and he's yeah. a debater. Uh, this is his, you know, how he, yeah, this mm. is his main occupation. And um, and this other guy, Jordan Peterson, who I had, I knew nothing about at that point, nothing. And you know, but he is a big phenomenon. Yeah, and, I know, yeah. yeah, big, huge uh, guy. And uh, um, and so it was. I I was told it's just three different views about the meaning of life. It's not not a debate. It's a three different views about mm. the meaning of life. And so yeah, I've, I've got a lot of views about the meaning of life. I'm very. Um, interested in showing that someone who doesn't believe in God or, you know, who believes as I do, yeah, they, they find meaning in life yeah. very much, yes. And so so I presented this thing. But then it turned into afterwards this, this kind of debate. Mm. And, yeah, I was not at all prepared for this. And William Lane Craig, at one point, this really took my breath away. Um he 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 said mostly he wanted to ignore me there i they were both quite uh, sexist people mm-hmm. and just wanted to talk past me you know mm-hmm. but uh, this i try not to allow and um at one point he he turns to me and says i'm going to read you a quote and i want you to identify who this quote is from and he oh i was happy he was finally acknowledging my existence and what's uh-huh, going okay. to yeah. so i'm listening to the quote i'm trying to think who could it be and it was it was the quote was something like, "If there um, is no God, then how can there be morality?" Mm. And then he finishes with a flourish. He identifies who it is: Steven Pinker. Uh-huh. So it kind of like knocked the breath out of me. I'm thinking, "What? What? How can this be? Is it before Steven met me and he didn't know better?" Because <laughs> <Right? laughs> <laughs> you know, I I was sort of uh, had very much. Uh, this was uh, he spoke about it last night. Yeah. And, you know that I had very much talked to him about how we can get objective yeah. morality yeah. Uh, from from naturalism. And so um, I meanwhile trying to and and then uh, so I mean I was I was sort of stunned, but it was like such a it was a you know to you do yeah. this sort of thing and then i went back mm. um 
that night in the hotel, and I go on. Oh, and I asked him. I asked him in the in the car going back to the hotel, where did you get that? And then he said, Oh, I don't have to cite my sources because it's. I'm, this is a speech. It's. I'm not publishing it. So, mm-hmm. it's, so I go back. I get online. I find out. It was the opening of an argument that Steve had published, I think it was in the New York Times magazine, mm-hmm. about um, morality and naturalist morality. It was his opening gambit, and then he was showing that it was false. Oh, oh that's very... Is that... That's is, not okay. That's not okay. No, and no, no wonder when I said, where did you get that, he wouldn't tell me. It's very dishonest, actually. I think it's quite dishonest. Yeah. So I think, I'm thinking to myself... And meanwhile, he is saying to me, you know, the whole speech was, if you are not, if you do not accept, not not just God, if you do not accept Jesus Christ. Mm. So he was leaving out my family as well, who are uh-huh. God believers. Uh-huh. If you do not accept Jesus Christ, you, 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 can't, you can't have any meaning, you can't have any morality, you can't have any purpose. Those, those were his three things. And I'm thinking, what a thing to say. How unchristian. You know, in the in the widest sense of Christian, you know, like to yeah. write off mm. so many people and say that there that we are living meaningless lives. That Spinoza led, that led a meaningless life. That Albert Einstein led a meaningless life. You know, uh, mm. what a thing. <laughs> No, but it's very excluding of others. I mean, the Christianity is very excluding. That's, yes, that's what I think. And 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 his argument was it was a little philosophical, given that this is is the possibility, if you don't accept mm. Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you will have no meaning, no morality, and no purpose, shouldn't you take the leap of faith? And what I should have said is, look, shouldn't you have a view of meaning, morality, and purpose that that even if your leap of faith turns out to be wrong, because maybe the universe is not going to... Uh, Take into account your leap of faith and, and design itself accordingly, little per, we little people of yeah. the inhabitants of the planet Earth. Um, that that maybe you, you, we can we can we can have a view of meaning, morality, and purpose that would work even if the universe doesn't take its orders from us. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. That's what I should have said. Yeah, you should have said. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, it was actually uh, someone in the audience yesterday at the event we did came up to me afterwards and said that he was a follower of William Lane Craig and he was referring to this debate. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But I, I hadn't time to talk to him. But, um, yeah, but so... I get a lot of emails from people who saw this debate. Some people mm. very much liking that I mm. stood up to him mm. and some people telling me, little girl, be quiet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, then you also wrote a biography of Albert Einstein's closest friend, Kurt Gerdel, yeah. uh, the mathematician. How come you took that on as a project? Uh, again, it was a series. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was uh, approached um, uh, by the editors and they wanted, this series was great scientific dis- discoveries mm. and they wanted to they were approaching people who as they put it can really write you know a lot of scientists don't don't are not trained in popular writing no. yes and but so they were going to to, to various people who, who know how to write and um, Einstein was already taken Einstein is a great 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 
interest and passion of mine. Yeah. And I had started by studying physics, and and the the theory that I loved more than anything was general theory of relativity. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, this is my. Did you read this this old um, uh, biography of Einstein written by one of his uh, co-workers? What was his name? Hoffman, maybe Hoff. Or something in the 60s. Oh, yeah. Banach. 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 Hoffman. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. That's a wonderful yes, biography. Yes, it is. Yeah, and and he a... worked with Einstein uh, personally for, for, for many years. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, he knew yeah. Him. He knew him intimately. Uh, and he is a professor of physics, I think. Yes, he is. Yeah, he was... It's uh, one of the best biographies, I think. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, uh, yeah. But he was taken. He so. was taken. And so um, I studied a lot of math yeah. uh, and a lot of mathematical logic mm. and uh, Kit Goodall uh, you know he has these amazing proofs yeah. um, that have a, have um, a lot of philosophical implications yeah. that's why he really that's was the whole soul of the proof, really. Yeah, and the so incompleteness theorem. The incompleteness mm. theorems, yeah, there are two of them. Yeah. And, um, and he was a Platonist when it mm. came to mathematics, meaning that he believed there was an objective world transcending the spatio-temporal physical world, a, a, an objective world of mathematical truths. Yeah. Um, and so we discover them, we don't invent them. Exactly, mm. exactly. And this was an extremely unpopular view at his time. Uh-huh. Everybody was what was called a formalist. They believed that it, math is reduced to, it's a higher form of chess, basically. Yeah. Mm. yeah? Uh, I know we both like chess very yes. much, yes. So, you know, there are constructed rules and then lots of things follow you can never exhaust it you know but um, but but we we made up the rules and yeah. it's a it's a it's a game yeah. and um, and he was uh, and the greatest mathematician of Gödel's or the previous generation um, uh, from Gödel's the greatest mathematician was uh, D- D- David Hilbert yeah and Hilbert. he was a formalist a yeah. very strong formalist and um, and Gödel um, he had taken a, a f- an introduction to philosophy as a as a, a undergraduate in the University of Vienna, mm. and this is when he became, I think, <laughs> a passionate Platonist. Yeah. And he was studying he was studying physics until that time, and he switched to mathematics, mm. um, and. And then first he was he was uh, concentrating on number theory, um, and then he switched to logic, which was very. Uh, it was in its infancy at that point. In fact, mostly it was taught in philosophy departments, not in math departments. Mm. Gödel had a lot to do with giving it the substance, the mathematical substance that it got moved into mathematics mm-hmm. departments. So um, and. I think, you know, tracing and also reading notes that he left behind, um, his whole um, goal always was to find a proof. First he thought he'd find it in number theory, then he switches to logic, to find a proof that would prove not only something in mathematics, but prove the most important thing in philosophy of mathematics, which is what is math about? Mm. He wanted to be able to have a, <coughs> excuse me, a mathematical proof. Mm. Uh, there would also be a meta mathematical proof. Yeah, yeah. Mm. and 
This is amazing. It's it so is. audacious. Yes, I love it. Also, no, I agree. Yeah. I agree. It's so audacious, I'm but a, it was. It would, uh, people still argue what really are the philosophical implications. Yes, and there is a lot of new new age interpretations. I uh, think. Yeah, yeah. There's and a Gerdes lot of is used misused a lot, and that's another reason I wanted to write a book mm, about very, this. Yeah, yes, very good. yes. I know one thing that I've heard also from quite scientifically educated people is that Gödel showed that there will always be phenomena in the universe that we will not understand because we can't describe them mathematically, which, in my opinion, has nothing to do with Gödel's proof whatsoever. No, you're completely right. Yeah. Absolutely and, right. And yes. of two reasons, correct me if I'm wrong, but of two reasons. First of all, all uh, universe, universe, universe phenomena could theoretically be described by a subset of mathematical statements that are provable. Yeah, That's probably. one thing. And the other thing, the correctness of a mathematical description of the universe is not related to a mathematical proof. It's related to the physical situation, if it is right or wrong. It's exactly right. Is it, no, it's exactly okay. right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's such that. a small subset. I mean, with your first... Yeah. Your first point, which is extremely profound, okay. it's such a small subset of mathematics mm, mm. that we that is uh, um, ascribable to the physical universe. Yeah, I mean, yeah. for you know, we have Euclidean geometry, right? That's one system. Mm. We have various non-Euclidean forms mm. of geometry. It's a physical question: which mathematical system describes the physical universe? Mm. But mathematically, these things are all the systems are fine. You know, and so, you know, the, the you know, it, it, this has nothing to do with what, with what uh, Goethe was trying to prove. What's interesting is often um, that the philosophical subtleties get missed, even by very, very smart, you know, scientists mm. and mm. Uh, mathematicians, not as much. Mathematicians, I find, <laughs> are, are usually very attuned to this question mm. of... Uh, you know, they, they understand what was going on here mm. with, with, with Gödel's uh, incompleteness theorems. But I, I've had also, I'm not going to mention any names, but some mm. very prominent physicists just cite, you know, that they're worried about physics altogether because what Gödel has mm -hmm. proved, you know, yeah. like the physics camp is on um, non-firm grounds. No. No, no. No, no, no. No, no, no. Oh, no. I agree, I agree. Yeah. But would you agree that what Gödel actually did was to show that Truth is not the same thing as probability. Oh, absolutely. That, that's how we that's exactly say it. that's mm. exactly right. And that's beautiful in itself. Oh, I think. absolutely. <laughs> yes. You know, proofs are a kind of tool. Yeah. But we and and it's not even that we don't know mathematical propositions. What he proves, we know that the, the propositions that he shows us are unprovable, mm. and for every mathematical system that you can create. You can create, you can construct propositions yeah. with it that are not provable within that system. But they are true. But we and we see yeah. in the proof that yeah. they're true. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. mathematical truth and mathematical knowledge are not the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As 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 proof. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We know more. Mathematicians know more than they can prove. And what he, hmm. in one way of showing, is that mathematicians do have to depend on intuition. Yeah, they do have to depend yeah. on intuitions, and sometimes intuitions are faulty, and that's why Hilbert had thought the formalism was motivated by the paradoxes that had 
come out in set theory in the beginning of the of the 20th century, mm -hmm. you know, that there are these various paradoxes, including the one that drove Bertrand Russell <laughs> nuts, you know, the, about the set of all sets, you know, not mm, yeah. members of themselves, right? Is mm. it a member of itself or isn't it? Mm. If it is, then it isn't. It? But if it isn't, then it is. If mm. you think through, you see that this is yeah. the case. Yeah, yeah. And so um, how do we, so right there in the heart of set theory, we can form paradoxes and our intuition is that, look, for every property we can think of, we can think of the corresponding set. That's, you know, the, the things that satisfy that property. Yeah. So, yeah, this is a property being a set that isn't a member of itself. There should be such a, a set cor mm. corresponding to it. Um, but we get into paradoxes. So Hilbert said, no, we have to formalize, 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 because our intuitions are um, are faulty, right? I'm mm. just like in... In ethics, too, we have to depend on intuitions there, too, and our intuitions often turn out to be faulty. Mm. And so it's, they're very parallel, actually. Um, and what, in some sense, what Gödel showed was, you know, uh, mathematics cannot rid itself entirely of intuitions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Gödel was a member of the Vienna Circle, right? Uh, he was an oppositional member, yeah, I, I know, would say. I, know. Yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to come he to attended, that. He attended, yes. He attended meetings, yes. but he didn't agree with them. He sat there mm. silently. He was very, it's another reason I like him. I met him once. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, we'll get to that. Yes, but, I want to hear yeah. about that. But um, he was also, he was a very quiet, shy person who yeah. mistrusted language. I think that's very, very interesting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and um, so... It's interesting to me because he wanted to find a proof to do his talking for him, mm -hmm. right? You mm -hmm. know, a proof, a final conclusive proof mm -hmm. of mathematical Platonism. But he attended, he didn't really speak up very much. He was actually a mm -hmm. graduate student and his advisor, um, Hans Hahn. Mm -hmm. um, he was a member of the He group. was yeah. a member, yes. Mm -hmm. And he took him and Menger, uh, another uh, uh, mathematical uh, graduate student, along with um, him, and they attended. Mm. And they were all very smitten by uh, Wittgenstein. Mm. Um, they were studying uh, Wittgenstein's Tractatus mm. uh, uh, chapter by chapter. Mm. It reminded me almost again, you know, many of them were Jewish, and it reminded me of the way... <laughs> In my family, we, you know, Orthodox Jews read the Torah mm. every week on the Sabbath, a different chapter read, mm. you know, and explored and everything. That's how they were reading the Tractatus. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and Wittgenstein was also, he was a logicist. He thought that he was, he was not a mathematical uh, Platonist. He thought everything, math was just uh, yeah. tautologies, logical tautologies, basically. And... Um, and so, uh, you know, uh, Gödel, I think, I think it irked him, the uh, deification of Wittgenstein. Mm -hmm. and, uh, because I know that uh, I found in the basement of uh, Princeton University's library where his, his uh, Nachlass mm -hmm. are, are, are kept, his, his, his writings, and uh, there was um, a, a questionnaire that somebody sent him. He never, Gödel never sent it back to him. This guy was a sociologist, and he asked him all sorts of questions, but he asked him um, which thinkers had most influenced him, and he listed people like Kant and Wittgenstein, and 
under Wittgenstein, Gödel said, absolutely not. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Oh. And so there was still this kind of... That's interesting. This kind of... Uh, and, and, and he had said to somebody, I, I don't remember... Somebody he had said to... I don't. I can't believe that he still uh, continues to say these things after my proofs. <laughs> and Wittgenstein, in uh, okay. Foundations of Mathematics, dismisses Gödel's proofs as logical tricks. Ah. Okay. See, so there was this really, yeah. So he he did not, and I think it goes back to the yeah. Vienna Circle. He had to listen to this deification and all the time. Did you Did you read um, Carl Sigmund's book on the Vienna Circle? I did. It's yes, a beautiful yeah, book. Beautiful I think. book. We yes, published yeah. it in, in Swedish. Oh, fantastic! Uh, actually, and it, it's one of the best books I read on that. Oh, I was a fascinating. Yeah. So I was when I first got to graduate school as a in, in philosophy. I went to Princeton and um, I was assigned because I was doing philosophy of science to one of the last remaining members, the one of, youngest mm. member of the Vienna Circle, uh, Karl Hempel, Peter uh, Hempel, and so he, he was. Teacher. He was my my uh, my uh, first advisor. We didn't get on, uh -huh. okay, <laughs> and I switched um, <laughs> because um, one, you know, he was a man of his generation. Mm. He was a little bit sexist. Mm. Um, I remember. Oh well, anyway, I won't. I won't go into this okay, story. No. But but there was some some indication of that. And two, I'm I'm not a positive. I, I started in, in my earliest year. I was a positivist, a strict positivist, and then I I'm not. Uh, okay. And um, and he was still holding to the old views of his view of um he was not uh he was not a scientific realist mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. he did not believe he, you know that scientific theories are descriptions of, of reality, reality. Uh, but you believe that right i believe that so strongly yeah, you're a scientific I am realist a strong realist yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah i and agree that, with you mm -hmm. and that's how we we you know he thought of them as um, instruments of prediction. Mm -hmm. it, they don't widen our ontology beyond experience. I think they do. I think that's the beauty of mm -hmm. mathematics. I think that we now know. That's why we're able to correct so much of our folks physics about yeah. space and time and you know realize space, time, yeah. causality. You know, they're <clears throat> so uh, individuation. Mm -hmm. uh, if we look at quantum mechanics, completely different from mm -hmm. our intuitions. Mm -hmm. The world is very different from our mm. intuitions and, and because science is telling us what the world is like. So I'm a, I'm a just, to me, that's the whole beauty of, of science. Yeah, I agree, I agree. But do you, do you, or no, I, I'm going to ask you this. In what sense are you not a positivist? Well, in that sense, just in that sense, because positivism did not want to um, expand ontology beyond experience everything you, uh -huh. you have to cash out the meaning mm -hmm. of every proposition in terms of its experiential content ah, okay okay mm -hmm. the meaning of a proposition is the difference it would make to our experience mm -hmm. you can't you know that 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 uh space-time is is uh is euclidean or non-euclidean mm -hmm. i mean this makes no this makes no difference mm. to our experience. We, mm. The experience is exactly the same. And so uh, I think scientific theory, I think to be a scientific realist is to say that uh, propositions can be meaningful even if you can't cash them out 
mm-hmm. um, in terms of the difference they would make to our experience. Mm. Yeah, and, and that's a non-positivist. Yeah. Uh, I mean, ultimately, we have to test our theories against experience, mm. obviously. But, you know, there are different, in, there are different uh, interpretations of quantum mechanics. There are, in, in terms of quantum mechanics, though, they're all equivalent because they agree with, all pos- with, with the experience. They make the same predictions, but they describe entirely different universes, mm. right? If uh, the many worlds interpretation mm. or... or um, Bohm, the Bohmian mechan- mechanics mm. uh, interpretation, um, and it makes a, a great big difference. Uh, I would say these are really different theories because, to me, a theory is not just the mathematical formalism and the empirical predictions that come out of the mathematical formalism, but also the ontology mm. that the theory is uh, is committing itself to. Mm-hmm. So I would actually say when we talk about different interpretations of quantum mechanics, no, we're actually talking about different theories of quantum mechanics mm. because they're different views of what the universe is like. Do you think we ever will get a, a quantum mechanic theory that is uh, compatible with our intuitions? No. No. No, it's that impossible. Something has to go. Mm. Yeah, quantum mechanics, you know, and, and in the uh, theory that I most like, uh, the Bohmian mm-hmm. <laughs> interpretation, um, uh, I think an, an implication of quantum mechanics is made very, very explicit, and that is that there is um, this, what Einstein called, spooky action mm. at, a, at a distance. Entanglement. Entanglement, non-locality. Yeah. That's something, once things have been quantumly entangled, no matter how far away they mm. go in the spatiotemporal order, what happens to one will instantaneously mm. affect. affect the mm. other, which seems and probably does contradict special relativity wherein nothing can go faster than the speed of light mm. light and so that was interesting i said speed of life speed <laughs> of light <laughs> yeah but yeah. um and that is in fact um a difficulty deep in contemporary physics that are two greatest most powerful theories relativity theory and quantum mechanics are in, are irreconcilable mm. Um, if but, you really the, think about them. But as I understand it, you can still not transfer information. No, you can't transfer information, so, exactly. So yes. in that sense, maybe nothing goes faster than light anyway. But, but in some sense, information is being transferred. <laughs> depends what you mean by information. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. <clears throat> this, this particle over here kind of knows what happened mm, to this yeah, one. Know, in some yeah. sense, information is being... But I know for, like, in the 70s, it was a very popular interpretation that that our consciousness affects the experiments. But that seems to be something that the physicists has given up, or doesn't agree with anymore. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in some sense, in a very concrete sense, that in order to know what's going on with the electron, you have to shine light on it, and that's yeah. a photon, and it's going to move it out of... Yeah, yeah, it's you have to interfere it, yeah. with you it. You have to interfere with but, it. So, but yeah. as I understand it today... Oh, you mean that it was consciousness yeah, itself. Consciousness. Yeah, no. No, but that's, that's a new age interpretation. A, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, but yeah. it was quite popular for a while. You are right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. When I talk to physicists today, they say that there is there is a realist interpretation today. That is the it, most. It, 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 this is really true. I mean, yeah. and you know, if you think of many worlds, this is super realist. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's not just this reality; yeah. <laughs> it's this other yeah, reality. Yeah. It's in fact too much too much reality yeah, for me. That's yeah. why I like the Bohmian. To me, it's a some more uh, it it violates fewer intuitions. Mm. Uh, it's it's uh, but you've one way or the other. 
quantum mechanics is such so that one of our very deep intuitions have got to be violated. Shouldn't you write a book about quantum mechanics? I mean, about the philosophical implications. That yeah, maybe, like maybe sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have um, a novel. It's called um, Properties of Light. Yeah. Um, a novel of love, betrayal, and quantum physics. It did not sell well. <laughs> I can tell you that because people who like novels don't like quantum no, physics, no. and people who like quantum physics usually don't like novels. No. Although I did actually, I do have a my greatest fan base, at least in the U.S., is physicists. Uh-huh. Everything good that's happened to me has come through physicists. Okay. I got this fantastic award called the MacArthur Award. It's called the popularly it's called the Genius Award. They support mm-hmm. you magnificently for five years. You can do whatever you want. Um, and it's usually people who are doing something cutting edge. Mm-hmm. And I was who I who I wanted to it's all done very much in secret, you know, who nominates you and everything. I tried to find out who nominated me. I finally got to the bottom of of course it was a physicist uh-huh. you know this is always they're, they're always wow. my yeah. this is my uh, and when I talk at, uh, um, about Spinoza to uh, audiences of physicists especially string theorists they they just love it and they walk out saying yes I'm a Spinozist you know that the idea that the that they we will be able to get to the final theory that will not only explain the ultimate form of the laws, but why they must be the laws. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This really appeals uh, to, to string theorists. But then, uh, just a few years ago, you received a medal from President Obama as well. Yeah. The National Humanities Award, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, tell, tell me about... I have about a big, big medal. <laughs> big, <laughs> big medal. Big, big bling I came back <laughs> with, yeah. So what, what, what is that award? What is it given for? Um, so yes, yeah, so there's uh, it is the highest award in the, in, in the U.S. For, in the humanities, mm-hmm. and um, it was I mean it's given uh, for all I think every year until Mr. Trump took office, <laughs> um, five people got this award, and so um, we every everybody on the committee resigned when Mr. Trump really yeah that's yeah. interesting yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, frankly, I mean, who would want to get a who would, who would want to get it from those yeah. little fingers? Yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> um, okay. But um, uh, and and it was um, for being a philosopher. I mean, this is the way that, that's what they have on the medal for being a philosopher. You know, for my work, they said particularly in Gödel, Spinoza, and Plato, and um, but also for. Um, uh, for for bringing philosophy into the public conversation and ex- use uh, with novels as well. Mm. So, and uh, President Obama, when he was um, talking about me, um, you know, he said the philosopher who writes novels, mm. Mm. and so and I lo- I like that so much. Yeah, yeah, it's because wonderful. it's the third culture. It's the third culture, you know. Mm. And I've never really thought of myself as really a novelist. I know a lot of novelists, uh, you know, and but for me, novels. I mean, I love novels and I love writing them, but for me, it is very much always folded into my philosophical mm-hmm. concerns. It is for me a way of trying to um, get people to feel, uh, you know, the beauty. Uh, how we're all philosophers, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that that is. I think everybody is. Uh, interested 
ulti- in these ultimate questions mm. of, uh, you know, what am I here for? What am I supposed to do with this life? What kind of universe am I in? And, um, this is, I think, this defines us as humans. Yeah, we're, we're, we are the species who are trying to get our bearings, right? And philosophy is the attempt to systematically, coherently, and ex- as expansively as possible, get our bearings. That's what philosophy is really about. Mm. And so we're all philosophers, and it really behooves people who are lucky enough, and I, I think I have the most fortunate life in the world that I can think about these things, mm-hmm. right, and get paid for it, um, that those of us who have this life give mm. <laughs> to, you know, people yeah. People want to know. So if, 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 if there really is such a profession, have we, and if we've made progress in these areas, which we have, we've made so much progress mm. in these areas, tell people about mm. this, and, and also show the passion um, behind it, and and uh, you know, and the stories, you know, the the narrative. We we are we are also species who we love narrative. And I mean, I think it's wonderful that you sort of take on that project to actually communicate to people who are not uh, scientists or philosophers themselves. Uh, more people in 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 the academic world should do that. I, I think, think so, and it's extremely hard. Yeah. Oh, it's, you know, when I have to translate some complicated, I mean, Gödel's incompleteness theorems, mm. right, to make it, you know, really accessible, mm. I, 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 for me, I have to refine my thinking. Yeah, I realize I, know, yeah. I did not really understand it, you mm. know, you, mm. until you can explain it to your 10-year-old child, yeah. you haven't really understood it, I, no. I think. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. And so, so true. This is, and when I'm writing for people, my audience is always, hey, I'm writing for re- very smart people, and I, 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 have, I have great faith in people's intelligence, right? Mm. Um, I'm writing for very smart people who just don't know what I know. They they haven't yeah. had to, they haven't devoted themselves to studying what I ha- what I have and and th- that's what I have in mind. I'm you know I'm so I'm never talking down. I mean one of the things that drives me most crazy is when I read books that are just talking down, right? Mm-hmm. Talking down to the audience, you know, as if as if these are faulty minds just mm-hmm. because they have not had the great privilege of being able to study what what. What, what the writer has been able to You study. must tell us about when you met Gödel once. Oh, yeah, yeah. How was that? So, <laughs> How was he? Yeah. He, um, so this was, yeah, I was a graduate student. I was then married, um, you know, to my first husband, who I mentioned that he's an Orthodox Jew, but he's also a very fine physicist. Mm. And this in itself is a very interesting story to me. Um, but... Um, he was, uh, while well, I was a graduate student, he was a postdoc at the Institute for Advanced Study in, in Princeton, often called the Einstein Institute. Mm. He was one of the first uh, full-time faculty there. And Gödel was also there, and they had, Einstein and Gödel had this famous friendship. Yeah. And it was a um, party, a garden party, for newcomers uh, to the Institute. And so I, I came with my, my husband, Sheldon Goldstein, and he, um, as soon as I walked in, um, somebody I knew from the mathematical logic world comes running over to me. He's here. He's here. Mm. It wasn't Einstein. We were, we were born too late for that. But Gödel, mm. and he was there. Now, Gödel was, fa- was the most famous person living in, in Princeton in those days. But he was a famous, not just as the great thinker, but as a recluse. Yeah. He didn't mix with anybody. He had certain 
mental problems that mm. eventually killed him. Yeah. But um, he he never mixed with people. The first thing I did when I got to Princeton was I looked up in the phone book in those days before the internet there was a phone book mm -hmm. looked up maybe Gödel is here he was there and he was listed in the phone book and I got on my bike and I pedaled right over to his house and I was very uh, amazed to see this kitsch in his front yard mm -hmm. um, uh, flamingos <laughs> no, you know plastic okay. plastic flamingos okay. I, I Ultimately learned this was from Mrs. Goodall, this okay, okay. <laughs> kitsch. But anyway, so to be to walk into this party and to be told he's here, Goodall's here, mm. and sure enough, there he was, short man, about my height, not much, not much taller, very, very skinny, um, and surrounded by young mathematical logicians. Mm. And I got into the crowd around him. And he was he was being very uh, sort of uh, Central European. He was very being very Viennese, very gracious, mm -hmm. and uh, answering questions. But then he excused himself, and I was too scared. I was too awed to ask the question that I so wanted to ask him, which was um, somebody John Gray, I believe his name is, had just published. He was a philosopher who had just published a proof that Roger Penrose was then going to turn into a whole book, mm. um, uh, The Emperor's New Mind, yeah. using Gödel's incompleteness theorem to argue that our mind cannot be a computer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I think that's a misunderstanding as well. That's, I, 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 you agree? I agree. I okay. agree. But I, I wanted to ask the man mm. himself. Of course. Did he think yeah. this was a good argument? And, you didn't. and I didn't. And I <laughs> okay. tell this to my students all the time. I say, ask the question. Don't be afraid mm. to ask the question. And my whole life, really, I have a few regrets, and that's one of them. <laughs> yes, that I didn't. Yeah. I didn't ask the great man yeah. uh, what he thought of this argument. Yeah. Because I I see that as a, also as, as some kind of new age interpretation of Gödel. I mean, why should the brain why should the brain be something else than a computer in that sense? And I mean, of course, there might be thoughts that uh, a recent process that we cannot complete, maybe, but why shouldn't... No, I, no, I don't understand well, why it I, should... The, I, why the argument is that um, computers run on algorithms, mm. right? And so, and recursion... And um, what Gödel's um, incompleteness theorems show is that not all of mathematics can be reduced to to algorithms. Yeah. yeah so it, so you know so so since at least computers uh, uh, not not analog computers but digital computers do run on. On algorithms, I mean, you have to be able to program them with uh, with a system, oh. well, uh, with a formal system. But you have neural networks who are self-learning now in AI, yeah, deep learning. Yeah, yeah. So, but computers, I guess, at that time, I mean, and now we also are having, you know, we have quantum computers now yeah, too. Then, yeah, yeah. and so, and you know, I I haven't like really run it through. No. I don't understand quantum computers well mm. enough to, to run it through whether the argument would break down. But I mean, I, I understand the, the logic here mm. that uh, the, the notion is that uh, 
computers are running on formal systems, basically, and uh, you have to be able to program it in. But why um, couldn't even the brain self-learning. also run on formal systems in that sense? Yeah, but formal systems are incomplete. That is really mm. what Gödel is showing, that yeah. every formal system is incomplete in mathematics. But then the brain could be that as well. Um, but we... In we know things that the formal system doesn't know, even in mathematics. Mm. Even in mathematics, I mean that we are able to... So, you know, when I said it's not just mathematical truth, the notion of mathematical truth can't be formalized, but mathematic no, mathematical knowledge itself mm. can't be formalized, mm, okay, that yeah. there are intuitions there that just, you know, that are essential to doing mathematics that can't be captured in, in a formal system. So th- that's the mm. logic there. I mean, I think it's a. I think it's there's an argument there. I know I would. Mm. I would have loved. You know, the, uh, there was this guy uh, Hao Wang, um, who Hao was. Wang. A, yeah, he was a Gödel. Three mm. books from his conversations, yeah. and he did ask Gödel the question that I was afraid to mm-hmm. ask, and Gödel gave a disjunction, an either or, which gives a lot of credit to this argument. He said, either. Um, either the mind is something more than a computer or the mind is a computer and but it's a, um, an, a, a computer with delusions. It thinks it knows things that it doesn't uh-huh, really know. Okay. That's interesting. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, yeah very, very much. Very, yeah. So, do, you, do you think we will have computers one day that develop some kind of consciousness? I don't know. I mean... You know, um, I don't think there's anything against it. I don't think mm. there's anything special about no. this hardware. No. It doesn't have to be this messy, bloody hardware. <laughs> it could definitely be made out of mm. silicon. Mm. So um, I don't know. It'll be interesting when we'll know, since since it's so hard to be able to tell whether something is mm. conscious or not. You know, the Turing test for, we mm. have a Turing test for intelligence, but we don't have a Turing test for consciousness. Mm. And so, um, I don't know. I think maybe, uh, you know, it'll be, it's, it's interesting to think how will we know when we do have a conscious, it's, perhaps it's when it starts complaining. <laughs> <laughs> One final question. Perhaps You're when it starts asking philosophical <laughs> questions, what am I doing here? What yes, is my purpose? <laughs> yes. Wow, that would be scary. <laughs> um, finally, Rebecca, you're in Stockholm now uh, with your husband, Stephen Pinker, yeah. for a, a few days. Or actually, you're going up to the north of Sweden yes, yes. to see the Northern Lights. Yes, this is this on my bucket list. This is something I've wanted to do since I'm in the sixth grade. <laughs> so. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's probably a lot of snow up there. You should be aware of that. Yeah, I I. I but so many clothes. I'm so, <laughs> <laughs> I'm so afraid of being cold. But it, is, it is beautiful. I yeah. was up there quite recently, and it's like a moon landscape. It's oh. completely different from what you see. Oh, there. I am so excited. <laughs> <laughs> so I really hope that you will see the Northern Lights. And then um, you go back to America in a few days. What's on your schedule for the nearest time? The nearest time. Well, you know, we have our American Thanksgiving. This is a holiday mm. that uh, I I love to. I, I love. I think gratitude is one of the. I think it's an overlooked virtue. Yeah. I think gratitude is so important, and so it's uh, uh, the holiday that we celebrate. And I will go to 
out to the West Coast to Berkeley, California, where I have a, a daughter and a, a grandson, and um, we'll all go there. My other mm. daughter will gather, and we're going nice. to stay for a week. And then I go off to Brussels mm-hmm. to the European Union um, for a debate on humanism versus religion. Really? <laughs> yeah. Who are you debating? I'm not quite sure yet. Oh. I was very excited because when they first... Um, invited me. They said it was going to be a representative of the Vatican. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, wow. (laughs) (laughs) I can't wait (laughs) to to do this. Wonderful. Would it be filmed? I I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I see. I I just got an email uh, about it. So maybe I'll be able to get more information Mm. about it. But uh, this is the next thing that I'm doing. I'm pretty, you know, I who say I don't like debates, but some (laughs) debates I just can't you have to take resist. Them. Yes, exactly. <laughs> In fact, the more they scare me, the more I say yeah. I have to do them. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, I wish you very good luck with that, of course. Thank you so much for being in this podcast, Rebecca. Oh, my pleasure. It's always great to talk to you. Thanks.